Ed, you're a part of our church body, and thank you for demonstrating the same welcome you've received by welcoming other people. We are grateful. We want to be a welcoming church because Christ welcomes us, not because we are people that deserve welcoming, but because he has made us welcome in himself. So um, today, if you're a guest here, by the way, my name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here, and if you are a guest, uh, we are going through the book of Judges. Today we're coming to an especially difficult passage in Judges, but we don't avoid preaching difficult passages. At the same time, this is perhaps the most appalling, grievous abuse of a woman and in the entire Bible. The Bible doesn't, doesn't gloss over sin, but it doesn't condone it. It's meant to show us the, the horrendous immorality that's the result of rampant idolatry. And I'm, today, just to give you a little warning, I'm not going to go into more detail than the text goes into. However, the text is, is quite graphic. So if you have a child, I, I'd encourage you to think about whether you would encourage them to go to children's ministry if they're not yet. If they're 11 and under, we have children's ministry for them. And it might be a good time to consider, even if it's not your normal practice. Um, what I'm aware of as well is that in a, in, a, in a group like this, there may be some who have suffered at the hands of others. There may be a, some who have been abused and might understandably struggle with the content we're about to go through. So because of this, we're, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going we're to have a very small uh, devotional Bible study in the room that's right beside the pallet room, pallet wall back there in the lobby. If, if you are struggling or you struggle with abuse or hearing about that and it's too difficult to hear, no one's going to look at you oddly. No one's going to wonder why. No one's going to ask you questions about it. But so what, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when, when I do, uh, I want to take time. We're all going to close our eyes. I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads in just a minute. And then if anybody needs to slip out, that'll allow those who need to do so to go be a part of a devotional Bible study to do that. Um, this is not for like everybody just because scripture is uncomfortable because then we'd all leave, right? But it is for those who uh, would struggle with sitting and hearing of the graphic nature of abuse. Uh, Aaron is back there as well as my wife and, and uh, I believe Kimberly as well. They want to uh, be there and available to go through a Bible study that's not related to this at all. And then if you're here and at the end of the message you find that I'm struggling. Um, please see Aaron or I or one of our wives or one of the deacon's wives or the deacons, and we would love to connect you with someone to help you. So with that disclosure ahead of time, if you need to leave, take an opportunity to do so. Let's bow our heads and pray together. God, we need you. God, please bring comfort to those who are struggling with your selfless, sacrificial love, comfort us. Please bring your peace to troubled hearts. God, we acknowledge that apart from you and your grace and left to ourselves, we would be hopeless and helpless and the world would be hopeless and helpless. But God, thank you that you did not leave us alone, that you loved us so much that you sent your son. Jesus, thank you that you loved so much that you came to sacrifice yourself. You came to live a selfless life for us. And you gave of yourself, even to the point of shedding blood and giving your life on the cross. God, thank you that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, now we are welcome. 
to come into your presence now through Jesus. God, we need you and we ask you to guide us and lead us today. Lord, would you give us a heart to love you, to live for you as our good and loving, gracious King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 19, Judges 19. We'll be reading verses 1 through 30. This is God's word. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and there was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. On the fourth day, they rose early in the morning and prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. And so the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, please be, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there. On the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, behold, now the day is waned towards evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you will rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belonged to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down on the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I came. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, Surround the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. 
And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Let's pray. Dear Father God, please pour out your grace on us today. Holy Spirit, enable me to preach, enable all of us to hear from you. Give us the ability to respond and to live for you because of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If I, if I wasn't committed to preaching expositorily and preaching through the whole counsel of the Word of God, I would skip today's passage altogether. Most pastors preaching through Judges stop at 18, have a wrap-up that condenses all of it into one. The reason why I'm not is because I believe it's important for us to see what God would have us see from this passage, as brutal as it is. Scripture doesn't gloss over anything. Scripture doesn't whitewash things. And it actually even shows the depravity of people who once were called by God's name. It's disgusting, and it's meant to shock the reader to see just how utterly depraved people become when God's no longer their king. You see, God had chosen Abraham and, and called him out and called his descendants out to be his very own people. He rescued them from slavery. He brought them out of Egypt. He provided for them. God gave his people the covenant. He gave his people his laws for their good. He protected them. He brought them into the land of promise and he commissioned them to take their inheritance, but they proved unfaithful. They continued to pursue their own way, even though God was so faithful in forgiving them, so faithful in providing for them, deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. God, by his grace, earned every right to be their king, and yet they rejected him as king until we get to the place now where we see that they have now living as if there's no king in Israel. It's not that there is none. It's that they are living as if there is no king in Israel. They're living as if God is not their rightful king, and it's really a snapshot of how people go from living for themselves and idolatry to utter depravity when they don't live as if God's their king. It's the epitome of selfishness, really. Maybe one of the main ideas the author tends to get across is that if we, when we live as if God is not king, when we live as if God is not king, we're capable of the most depraved, selfish sin. And that's what we see in this passage. We see people living as if God is not their king, and, and then we see that we're all really capable of the most depraved, selfish sin. It's meant to help us see the decline of how people who once followed God have now turned completely away from him. There's some things that are relatable, but there's some things that aren't. We're, we're not a theocracy like Israel was, or at least like they were supposed to be. 
but there are lessons for us to learn about how society declines. Hey, if you wonder, how does society get so bad? This, this, this passage helps us see that. But it's not just, how, is, how do things get so bad out there? This passage is about how things get bad in the people of God. How do churches decline? How do churches turn away from God? How does this happen? Well, it happens when we serve our own idols, when we don't serve God as king. It shows us that what we believe and who we serve, it affects how we live. And it's actually meant to show that, that the, the beliefs and actions of just a few people can affect an entire nation. So don't think that, that your actions have no effect on other people. This pastor tells us the reverse. Now these are for harm, but our actions and our obedience to God has an effect on everyone around us. This passage, though, is it's meant to make us long for a king, to long for deliverance, to, to long for freedom from sin. But right away, what does the author expose us to? He, he shows us something in the first nine verses. He shows us a selfish unwillingness to, to sacrifice convenience. He, he shows us a selfish unwillingness to sacrifice convenience. The Levite, we don't really know much about him, but he shouldn't be wandering. He's a Levite. He should be serving in the temple or serving in worship of God. And he's not. He's wandering. He's sojourning. He's going wherever he wants. He is selfish. He's not wanting to be inconvenienced by serving and doing what God's called him to do. And so instead he's wandering off on his own. It begins very selfishly. And then we see that he has a concubine, which he should never have. He doesn't have a first wife. But he takes a concubine, which is kind of classified as the second wife, that was used only for gratification. It shouldn't be. He's selfishly unwilling to be inconvenienced. Inconvenienced by a, a, a real wife, a wife of, of equal standing. Instead, he takes a concubine just to serve his own selfish interests. Using her for what he can get, he takes a concubine for himself and implies that she doesn't really have a choice in the matter and that she's not a willing participant. For some reason, we see that, that she is unfaithful. We don't know what that, that word exactly means. It can be used of just saying that, that she left him. And if he's really the selfish character, which he seems to be, it's no surprise that she was unfaithful by leaving him. In any case, she doesn't want to be with him no matter what the reason. So she goes back home. But get this, he's, he doesn't pursue her right away. He waits four months. Four months. Why did he wait four months? He waits four months to go and pursue his concubine. And then finally he goes and it says that he wants to speak tenderly. But don't, don't misread that as if he has good motives necessarily. Because in Genesis we can read of an account where one of the princes of Shechem rapes Dinah. Then afterwards he speaks kindly or tenderly to her. It's, it's manipulation is what's going on here. He, he, he's... Spends four months, he realizes that it's not convenient not to have her, so he goes and gets her when it's convenient for him. And he goes and he pursues her. And, but when he's there, his, his father-in-law does something really shocking. He receives him with joy. He's happy to see him. And now, we don't know why, but that just reveals the character of the father-in-law. He's willing to receive, to have practice hospitality towards this selfish Levite. 
Maybe he wants to see them reconcile because his daughter had been unfaithful, but this man was selfish. Maybe he's joyful because there could be reconciliation that could honor God. And so this father-in-law, he practices extreme hospitality, actually. He practices the epitome of what he's supposed to. He's unselfish. He's generous. He's kind. He seems to really want the son-in-law to be there. He seems to really want to have them restored. And four times he actually mentions he says, let your heart be merry, let your heart be glad, and let your heart be strengthened. The, the words of the son-in-law, it talks of the son-in-law wanting to reconcile with the daughter. It's, it says that he wants to speak kindly or speak his heart to her. And it's almost as if the father-in-law is saying, you know, hey, are, are you going to do that? Are you going to speak your heart? Let, me, let your heart be glad. Stay a little while longer. Maybe the father-in-law knows something we don't, that maybe he hasn't really spoken his heart yet, and we don't see that he has. But because it's mentioned at least four times after that, that's probably what's going on. But in any case, the, the father tries to convince him to stay, but as you read through the account in the first nine verses, the girl becomes marginalized. She becomes secondary to this account. Her father and the Levite, they sit down together. She's not, nowhere to be seen. When he goes to leave again, the, the father-in-law convinces him, hey, would you please stay? But the girl seems to be an afterthought. She's barely visible. And the same pattern repeats itself again until the morning, until the next evening. On the fifth day, it's, it's now time when, when you would want to not travel. Because it was dangerous back then to travel at night by foot where bandits and robbers could come in. And where the land was not rid of all of the enemies of Israel. And so it would not be a safe place to travel at night. And so the father-in-law says, it's starting to get dark. It's about to get dark. Just a couple hours. Why don't you stay another night? Leave early in the morning so that you can go home. And the man could have done that because it really was only a day's travel to where the man was from. On foot, he could have made it in the day during daylight hours. But this man was so selfish, he didn't want to be inconvenienced by his father-in-law forcing hospitality on him. He didn't want that. He didn't want to put up with it. He didn't want to put up with relatives and family that were being kind to him. He didn't want to be inconvenienced, and so he leaves. And you have this foreboding, ominous kind of sense as you're reading through it. It's almost dark. Please stay. Go in the morning. Don't leave. But he was unwilling to stay in the night. He was selfish. And he goes instead on a, on a selfish search for convenience. That's what we see in, in verses 10 to 21 is this, this selfish search for convenience. He's, he's looking for where he can find the most convenient place to stop, the place that most suits his desires, his wants, his needs. He doesn't consult the girl. He just gets up and he goes and he departs. It's not clear what she thought or she had any say in the matter whatsoever. He is not considerate of either the father-in-law or the girl. He goes and it would be about a five-mile trip to Jebus, about a two hours by foot. And he gets there and it's, it's dusk. And the servant seems to know better than his master. And the servant tries to appeal to his master he says, hey, why don't we turn aside to Jebus? It's, it's getting dark. Why don't we turn aside? Why don't we go in here? Let's spend the night there. You know, it's not dark yet. Our chances of finding a place to stay would be better. I can imagine the conversation as he's advocating. Because, you know, it, when it get, got dark, people would go inside to their homes. And it'd be hard to find shelter and lodging. But his master is selfish. He doesn't listen to advice. He goes... He says, now nah, we're going we're to go ahead and go on to, to Gibeah, a couple more miles. 
Then it's already dusk. By the time they get outside the city of Gibeah, it's dark. The sun has gone down. And by the way, the sun's going down on the story as well in the account. The account is taking a turn to darkness. By now, it's going to be more difficult to find lodging in this dark city. So it's unsurprising they sit down in the middle of the open square of the city and they don't, they don't have anybody welcoming them in because most people have gone home. And this old man who is not from Benjamin, not a Gibeonite, he is sojourning in Gibeah. He is an Ephraimite. He comes in from the field. He's a hired hand. And he sees them in the square and he asks them where they're coming from, where they're going. And then he takes them in. In the middle of that, though, you see this little interaction between him and the, pre, and the, the Levite. The Levite says, um, well, we are, we're going to the Lord's house. He lies. He manipulates. Why? Because he's wanting to have a place to stay. And so he manipulates and kind of uses religion as this manipulative tool. I'm on a mission from God, and so would you take us in? But we clearly know that he was heading home. Because that's where he was going to begin with, and that's where he goes in the end. So he's just using, manipulating. There's something here about hospitality and that the people of the city, they were, they were fellow Israelites. They should have shown hospitality. Now today, that idea might be foreign to us. Because today, the idea of taking strangers into your house is anathema. No one does that. But you know what hospitality, it's... It's a command from God. And you might wonder, why? why? Because it, it reveals the very character and nature of who God is. You see, God takes in those who are outsiders. God calls those who were not his own children. God brought Abram in from a foreign land into his household to be his own son. That's what God does. God God demonstrates hospitality. When we were strangers, God calls us near. When we were his enemies, God makes us his family. Reflects the very nature and character of God himself. That's why hospitality in the Old Testament is so important and why they place such an emphasis on it in that culture is because it was a reflection of who God was. God was the one who welcomed sojourners and strangers and aliens and he commanded the Israelites to do the same thing. To welcome the stranger, the alien, the sojourner. And it doesn't end in the Old Testament. The New Testament has all kinds of commands about hospitality. I don't have time to go into it, but Romans 12, 13 directly commands us to practice hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 does as well, and so does 1 Peter 4, 9. When Jesus is trying to get across the, uh, the, the character and nature of God, in Matthew 25, he tells a parable. Matthew 25, 34, it says, when, when the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when do we see a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when do we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. God is all about hospitality. Because he himself is a welcoming God to those who don't deserve it. 
in the New Testament, it's don't neglect to show hospitality. Elders are called to be an example in hospitality. Back then, it was, a, it was an accepted cultural norm. Today, keeping the stranger out is the norm. You know, having the, the, the nerve to ask somebody for something is considered rude in our world, and hospitality is rare. You know, I pray that God would give us a heart of hospitality, that we wouldn't leave any unwelcomed. You know, we can be a hospitable outpost in a, in a private, hostile, reclusive world because the Father shows us lavish hospitality. The people of Gibeah don't. This old man, at least at first, seems to. But then he too is selfish. They're eating and drinking. They're in his house. He takes them in. And then all of a sudden there is an awful knock at the door. And then we see really the, the final The final part of the account is a selfish willingness to sacrifice for convenience. Not to sacrifice themselves, but to sacrifice others. There's a selfish willingness to sacrifice others for their own convenience. This old man seems to be hospitable, but he's really not. He takes them in, but he's only willing to go so far. They knock on the door, and these worthless fellows, these literal sons of Belial, sons of, they're so evil that they're like sons of the devil. They surround the house, they beat on the door. They tell the old man to bring out the man so they can have their way with him homosexually and forcibly. And it brings to mind the account that we've seen in, in Genesis of Lot at Sodom. The men of the town there in Sodom saw the angels come into the house and they bang on Lot's door demanding to have those men to have their way with them. And Lot's outside trying to reason. They don't respond. These angels instead, they take Lot. They rescue him, pull him inside, blind everybody else. And the angels rescue. This, this, this account in many ways is the antithesis of rescue and it's giving up. The, the Levite who didn't want to stay with foreigners now stays with the people of Israel who have become far worse than foreigners. They've become like Sodomites. And it's the product of living as if God is not our king, the product of giving ourselves over to our own idols. This man, he goes out, this old man, he appeals to his brothers, fellow Israelites, and they don't listen. <clears throat> it seems like he might be standing up to them, but he's not. And then he does the unthinkable. He offers his own virgin daughter, and then the man's young concubine in place of him. This old man is a selfish coward. It's the epitome of selfishness. He's willing to go against his own duty to protect his daughter to preserve the convenience of his guest. He's willing to offer the outrageous to avoid what he calls outrageous, he selfishly does what seems right in his own eyes. He should have fought. He's no better than Menegivia. He's just as evil, but he justifies it. 
And the Gideonite didn't, didn't seem to be getting anywhere with his words, so that the man seizes his concubine, this Levite. Doesn't want to fight either. He doesn't want to be a convenience. He takes his own concubine and forces her outside. Throwing her to the wolves. When they have her in, in their own hands, they accept her in place of him. And this group of evil men have their way with her and abuse her all night until the point where she comes and she falls down at the door. She's too weak to cry out, too weak to knock with her hands on the threshold. We're meant to be appalled. And the author doesn't call her husband anymore, call, call him her husband, he calls him her master because he's just treating her like property like a slave that's discarded for his own selfish ends. It doesn't say that he went looking for her, that he attempted a rescue. He, he selfishly stays there all night and he goes to bed. And then he leaves in the morning and it doesn't say he's going out to look for her. He says he's going to leave. He doesn't even care what happened to her or where she is, where she might be. And then he's surprised when he finds her at the threshold of the door. He doesn't reach down to care for her. He doesn't ask how she is. He doesn't try to comfort or care. He just says, get up, let's go. And she doesn't answer. He doesn't tend to her needs. He picks her up and puts her on the donkey. She probably needed medical attention if she wasn't already dead. Instead, he puts her on the donkey and he goes home. At some point, she dies. And, and the author leaves it intentionally vague. Because we don't know when. We don't know if it was... At this point, or later when he cuts her up, we're meant to be scandalized. When he goes home, he, he takes a knife, he cuts her up in the 12 pieces, sends her throughout Israel. It's the final and ultimate violation of her personhood for his own selfish purposes. He should have been a protector. He should have loved her as himself. He should have been willing to sacrifice everything for her. But it ends with the complete opposite of what a loving relationship should be. And, and that's the result of living for our own selfish means. Living as if there's no king. Living and doing what's right in our own eyes. And he finally desecrates her body and sends her throughout Israel. He uses her body one last time to shock everybody so he can get his own revenge. Everybody else is shocked. It's a, it's a call to war for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we're going to see next week that he, he actually kind of spins it in his favor. He leaves out some important detail that he, he's the one who offered up his, his concubine to be violated. They are scandalized rightly. They can't believe this kind of thing happened to God's people. You see, this is not about the sin out there. It's about the sin within. About how idolatry can, can turn even those who claim to follow God to live selfishly and to give in to selfishness until we become utterly depraved. And if you want to free yourself from having God as king, if you want to live for yourself and do what seems right in your own eyes, if you want to live for what feels right, if you don't want God telling you what to do, then be prepared for the depths of the depravity of the heart of man. Conscience won't help either because... Conscience is going to be driven by a desire to assert self, preserve self, 
And when you live for yourself, you're going to justify anything to get what you want and preserve what you want. That's what we see. That's how the world's so bad. You know, you wonder how's the world become so bad? Well, people living for themselves instead of God as their king. It's like the author is asking the people of Israel, asking God's people, asking us, do you really want to free yourself from God's law? Do you find his law oppressive? If so, you're going to be at the mercy of everyone else who does what's right in their own eyes. You see, God's law is not meant to oppress us. It's not him as king. It's not meant to subdue us or take away our personhood. It's actually meant to preserve us in his image, to preserve our personhood, to keep us from evil. That's why David spends the longest chapter in Psalms telling of how he loves the law of the Lord. It's his delight. Because otherwise we'll be at the mercy of everyone else who wants to live doing what's right in their own eyes. If, if you reject God as king, you're always going to live at the whims of the mighty like this woman was forced to do. When that happens, you'll get hurt. But before you, you judge Israel and think that, you know what, we're better, we're not like that, we're not even prone to that, I think we're meant to examine our own hearts. Say, who, who is our king? Are we living as if God's our king? Are we... Are we living in submission to him? Are we living in such a way where we rejoice in his goodness to us, where we, we love his commands, we love living for him because he has graciously welcomed us into his kingdom? In the context of the entire Old Testament, God still doesn't give up on them, which is shocking. If you and I were God, we'd say, done. We call for a second flood. And it's deserved. But God is not done. He's not done with his people. He doesn't utterly wipe them out. But what we see is this, this idolatry that turns to immorality. So the question is, what's the remedy? It's not as if we can, we can escape the evil out there, but we are called to reflect and say, okay, well, how can we live for God from within? You see, we all, we all need to be saved. We all need to be rescued. We all need to be saved from ourselves and from our own wicked hearts apart from Christ. And the, the remedy is to receive the only message that, that rescues those trapped in idolatry. And, and then not just to receive it, but then to share that message. That's the remedy in, the, in a world caught in immorality, caught in depravity, a world that seems only to be getting worse and worse, more and more selfish, more and more blinded by that. That The remedy is to share the message of the one true king, that there is a true king. This message, really, this, this passage, in, in some sense, sets us up for David to be king. But really, David failed. And it sets up this contrast between Saul, who's a Benjamite, and the Benjamite's about to be almost wiped out completely, but Saul, the Benjamite, David, the Judite, and it sets up this contrast, but then David's not the ultimate king. Even he would fail and his kingdom would crumble. But we, we preach today a message of hope. Because God has given us a king. We have a king. And that's good news. He's not a ruthless king who takes from us. See, all the kings of old, they, they took from. 
the people. They would tax the people, take from the people tribute. They would require things of the people, demand the people serve them. What does Jesus come to do? He flips it on his head. Jesus didn't come to take, he came to give. He didn't take from us, but he took all of our worst sins on himself. He took the epitome of our selfishness on himself. He demonstrated the epitome of selflessness. He doesn't sacrifice his own on his, for his benefit. He is what Ephesians 5 tells us of. He gave himself up for his wife, for the church. He sacrificed himself to the point of shedding blood and he sacrificed himself on the cross. He's the ultimate loving king. He didn't give up his bride. He died to protect his bride, to call his bride. He, instead of casting us out, he took us in and he took our shame, he took our guilt, our utter depravity. Even if you are guilty of some of the same kinds of sins that we see in this passage, he took our violence, our abuse, our murder on himself on the cross. And he doesn't destroy, he doesn't divide, he doesn't separate, he restores, he heals. And one day he's going to completely do away with all evil. He's completely rescued from sin so that no one ever has to endure this again. But in Christ, God welcomes us to come to him. All who are weary and need of rest, all who are dirty and filthy, all who are sinful, all who are in need of redemption, God welcomes us to come to him through our king to receive forgiveness, to receive reconciliation because he desires to truly speak kindly to us, to free us from living for ourselves, to free us from selfishness. And he gives us his true food, his true drink to be sustained by him, to live freely for him. He's our king. We have a king. That's good news. We don't have to live like that. We have a good king. Will we acknowledge him? Will we live for him in response to his grace so we can show forth the glories of the king? Let's, let's close our eyes and we'll pray and we'll, we'll close in song.